morning. The sermon text for today is going to be found in Psalm 19, verses 1 through 14. We have some Bibles in the back. If you guys don't have one, follow me there. I'll give you guys a couple minutes or a couple moments to follow me there. All right, Psalm 19, 1 through 14. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteousness altogether. More to be desired are they than gold and much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sin. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart Be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I, I pray that that would be all the more true this morning, that we would taste and see just the deliciousness of your word and get to declare along with the heavens that, that you are worthy and you are glorious. Uh, help us to find truths in your word and be in my words that you would be glorified. We praise you and thank you for goodness. Amen. Am I on? I can't tell. Honestly, goodness. No? Doesn't feel like it, so... If I click off the mute, that is always helpful. That's why. Sorry if you couldn't hear the prayer, but I prayed really, really. It was the best prayer I've ever prayed. Um, so we get to kick off a new sermon series. Uh, this today is the is the start of it, and it is the summer of joy. And we have this second portion that is the summer of lament, joy and lament. We experience both of these things in life. We have six sermons that will preach on joy, today being the first of those, and then five on lament. And throughout that, kind of sprinkled in, are a couple of guest preachers, and Jacob Shin is going to preach again uh, from from our body, and a a sermon on priorities uh, that we have here at Table Rock. So all of those, that's kind of the summer where we're going. But right now is to focus on this, this summer of joy and pursue joy, If you didn't know, that's kind of our tagline at Table Rock, pursue joy. And if you're like me, I I hope at least there's a piece of you that really likes this tagline, pursue joy. It it resonates with something 
that says, yes, that's what it, that feels right, that we should be a joyful people as Christians. We should be doing something that should resonate with something inside of us. But we haven't often preached about it and we, or talked about it or taught about it. So what do we mean by pursue joy? What does that actually entail? Uh, and often in, in these kinds of moments, it's helpful to talk about what we don't mean when we say pursue joy. What we don't mean is hedonism. And hedonism is, is a big word that just means like pursuing anything and everything that feels good. It's self-gratification. It's a worldview that says, that, that defines life by pursuing anything that satisfies them or a person emotionally or physically. Uh, that is hedonism, seeking pleasure. Because pleasure, according to the hedonist, is the ultimate aim of life. The more pleasurable your life, the more uh, successful you are to the hedonist. So if we were hedonist, our tagline would be pursue pleasure. And that's not what the tagline is. That, would, that wouldn't be right at all. That's not what we're saying. What we do mean, however, in pursue joy could be classified and has been classified as Christian hedonism. So it's a, it's a very subtle form of, that says your greatest joy can be found in Christ. It's not bad to enjoy good things. That's Christian hedonism. It's too far to only pursue pleasure. That won't lead to your greatest joy. Instead, Christian hedonism says that God, this is how one, one f- famous pastor who kind of coined the term Christian hedonism, he put it this way, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. In other words, we'll find our greatest joy, our greatest, our deepest satisfaction, our highest joys by following the Lord and living according to his statutes, his ways, how he designed it to be lived. In fact, we'd say that if you want to experience the truest forms of pleasure, the truest satisfaction in life, not just a fleeting pleasure, but an abiding joy, that that can only be found through Jesus Christ. And it is through that lens of Christian hedonism that we can, I think I forgot the clicker. I need the clicker. Hold on. I've forgotten it twice, but it's going to derail my whole train, and I don't have much train to run on today, so I need every bit I can get. So it's through that, that lens of Christian hedonism that we can read something like Psalm 73 and say, Amen. Uh, this isn't it. Am I going the wrong way? Going the wrong way. I told you I didn't have much train to run on today. Okay, Psalm 73. It says this, Who have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We can read that and we can say amen. That is true. I want that. And yet, We can also read this, I think when we're being honest, and go, really? Especially this part. Really? There is nothing, nothing I desire besides you. Not my family. Not, for me, sometimes the newest piece of technology. Not just a bit more money that would help me do this or that. Not success, not an upcoming vacation, not delicious food. Not even, for me especially, not even fly fishing, nothing I desire besides you. Can I say that with a clear conscience? 
Like it's hard. That's hard to say that in in 100% honesty. So I often feel like I'm being uh, consistently hypocritical on verses like this. We say that we there's nothing we desire, and then we go about living our lives filled with secular jobs, selfish pursuits, uh, distracting hobbies. So there's this tension, I think, in the Christian walk between us proclaiming this, reading this, and going amen, and yet also seeing and wanting and desiring other things. And it's, it's like we have this intellectual head that says, yes, that's true, and, and yet we also find uh, that we're, we're talking out of both sides of our mouth sometimes when I say, there's nothing in, in life I desire besides you. And I also then turn around and the next day I'm looking, flipping through Amazon, well, flipping, scrolling through Amazon. And it leads to low-grade guilt, I think, for many of us. So shouldn't, in other words, shouldn't there be this greater, this bigger gap between my love for God and my love for things of this world? Shouldn't that gap be greater? Because oftentimes it feels like it's, if anything, it's, it's pretty even sometimes. And sometimes, unfortunately, I desire things of this world a little more than I catch myself and repent. Shouldn't that gap just be so much greater? This tension, however, is in God's word. It's, it's in Psalm 73, but it's also in Philippians. We can see it in, in there. It says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I count it all as loss. Everything, don't care about it, don't want it. Psalm 70, or 27, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, one thing that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Just one thing. And yet on the opposite side, we also have these verses where there's tension because it says in other places like 1 Timothy 4.4, 4, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Man, I don't know. If you can just get me to a blank slide. There we go. 1 Timothy 6.17 says that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So can we enjoy these things or not? Uh, perhaps you've had conversations about like, well, can we go do this thing or should I spend money on this thing or how much can I enjoy it or do I need to temper my enjoyment of it because I should be enjoying God all the more? And there's this tension. How in the world can both sides of these verses be true because they're seemingly contradictory, uh, but they're not? And I hope that we, we can, in this sermon series of pursuing joy in this summer of joy, help alleviate some of this tension if you feel that, like I do, at times. I think it will help to resolve it. Because both of these are true. We can read both, both sets of these verses and go, amen, those are true, yes. And then we get to start with that today in Psalm 19 to, to try and begin to alleviate this and see how they work together for our joy. And in this psalm, 19, there's three distinct parts. There's verses 1 through 6, so we'll talk about those, and then 7 through 11, and then we'll wrap up with, with the last parts, 12 through 14. All three parts. So uh, verses 1 through 6, see if I can get there. I pull it up right. My Nope. 
if you can get me back <laughs> to the one through six, please, Margaret. Thank you. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So I, this is what's going on in this first part, what this is saying, is that all of, the, all of creation, all of the heavens are declaring something about God. The stars, the moon, the heavens in general, the clouds, the weather, the rainbows, when you look up, the sunrises, the sunsets, they are all proclaiming this message. And the message is this, God is glorious. What you see when you look at creation, when you look at the, the heavens, is a masterpiece by the hand of a creator. This message, according to verse 2, is going out through all of creation, day after day, night after night, from the very first day of creation until it is no longer here. That message is being declared. A constant drumbeat has been audible since that first moment of creation because it can't help but declare it. God made the sunset to say something, and if a sunset had a mouth and had vocal cords, it would be saying, it would be declaring, God is a great creator and worthy of praise. If the stars at night had a face, it would be filled with a smile as it sang out, mighty are the works of God. Praise him as you look at me. That's the message of the heavens. Romans 1.20 says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in all, that he have been, in all the things that have been made. All people, the Bible tells us, all people are stirred when they look up at the heavens. Just as creation was designed to do something particular, declare his glory, we as human beings are, des are designed to recognize creation when we see it. And so Psalm 19, I think this is really interesting. Psalm 19 was, was written by David about 1000 BC, 2000 years before telescopes. Think about what David and people in his time knew about the heavens. They looked up, they know that there is a vast expanse. They know it changes. They probably tried to count stars the, the origin of, origins of astronomy, but they had no telescopes. And with all of the knowledge, limited as it was compared to what we know now, he looked up at the heavens and he went, this declares that God created. This declares that he is incredible. The heavens declare the glory of God. That was with limited information. Think about all of the discoveries that have been made since David wrote this. It blows my mind. We now know that there are billions of stars, billions of galaxies. And, and each galaxy has billions of stars. There are like, I can't remember what the number was, but it's mind-blowingly uh, insane how many billions and billions of stars that there are. Galaxy was not even a vocabulary word to David. We have this whole other study of science and, and astronomy with its own set of vocabulary, solar systems, not known, 
black holes, red giants, blue dwarfs, light years, these, all of these categories to explain all of it. And yet, with each discovery, we find this fine-tuning and the same consistent drumbeat message in the heavens with each one of these discoveries. For instance, the Earth and its 23.5 degree tilt, that if that was just a little bit different, our tilt on the axis was different, then we would be covered with ice or, or too hot. The polar caps would melt, we'd have no land. The Earth is 94.28 million miles from the sun. If you reduce that by just a little bit, like a percent, then the Earth is un uninhabitable. The distance from the Earth to the moon is 238,900 miles. We've now measured all of these things that David didn't know. But if you change that distance, then the tides are totally different and, and things don't work. Life doesn't exist. Where the atmosphere is this perfect blend of gases and just the right proportions that make life possible. The gravitational pulls within the different planets in our solar system all work together to balance it all perfectly for life to exist. Or this one, if you're really into things, I'm not sure I can understand it, but the ratio of electromagnetic force, the ratio of that electromagnetic force to the, to, uh, the gravitational pull within protons is approximately 10 to the 36th power. This is, it's finely tuned so that life could exist. And my whole point in all of that is that 3,000 years ago, David had none of that information. He looked up at the sky and the heaven and the heavens and said, they declare the glory of God. And every single message since then that we discover about the heavens are declaring the same thing. They're declaring the glory of God. So that's, that's sort of why, how do they do this? How do the heavens declare his handiwork? Simply put, I think creation is art. It's art. We, we are meant to look at, we're moved by art. Some of you are moved by, and you have this emotional response to, to different types of art. For some, it's painting. For some, it's music. For some, it's sculpture or a rich performance, poetry or motion picture or photography, no matter what it is. But we look at art or we consume art or hear art and we're moved, we're stirred. We know when we experience it that, that we can see in the art the work of an artist. And that implication of what we're supposed to see in this message is being declared by the creator is that there is, being declared, de declared by the creation is that there is a creator. There's artistic vision, there's design, there's intentionality and imagination. And he designed and he crafted everything. And part of what we're supposed to see in that is that he designed and crafted you and me, you're known. Just as a painter loves the painting they created, he knows and sees and loves you. You were fearfully and wonderfully and beautifully made. And then in verses 5 and 6, we get these particular comparisons, these specific ones. He says, in them, in verse 5, in them, he's still talking about the heavens. In the heavens, he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and nothing is hidden from its heat. When the author, David again, looked at the sun, he thought of two things. He thought of the groom on his wedding day. 
So he's like, in the brilliance of the sun, I see the gladness of a groom. And it's like this, the sun has been hidden in this tent and he comes out shining and glorious and welcoming the day. And then he thought of a strong man and none of the translation there would be a warrior. In the heat of the sun, David saw the strength and the unrelenting courage and the purpose of a warrior. And this, this just points us to creation is this collection and this web of images and pictures and patterns and analogies and metaphors and they all are woven and interconnected together by the wisdom and the skill of a creator so we can understand our world better. These comparisons of the sun and the groom or the sun and the strong man are from other places, a deer panting for water and longing for God's word or a tree planted by streams of water and a man bearing fruit in his life like a tree bearing fruit in season. We set one thing against another thing, and by comparing and contrasting those things, we understand them both better. Both the warrior and the son, we get a glimpse of something there. This message that, that is being declared and proclaimed by all of creation, we call this, in, in biblical terms, in our worldview, general revelation. It's available to everybody. We all look up. It stirs something in all of us when we look up at the heavens. It's revealed generally to everybody. The heavens are declaring it. The stars are proclaiming it. It's accessible to all people everywhere at all time. There is no speech. There are no words whose voice is not heard. And nothing escapes from its heat. So what's to say then that you can't just make up whatever more metaphors you want about the earth and about God and go like, well, this is all general revelation, right? So for instance, if you've ever been caving, and even if you haven't, you can picture this, if you've ever been caving, there's usually a moment that you get down deep in the cave and whoever's leading it is like, let's turn off all our lights. And you get to experience absolute darkness where there's not the hint, the slightest hint of light. There's no light at all. So there are parts of earth if you go down deep enough in a cave or if you swim down far enough in the water where light does not reach, that's true, right? So can you then perhaps conclude something like this? Just as the light of the sun cannot penetrate the deepest abscesses of earth, so also are there places and people around the world that the light of God cannot reach. True or false? Or this one. Hurricanes don't occur in Idaho. And yet they do in Florida. So God loves the people of Idaho more than the people of Florida. No, neither, neither one of those. I hope you're with me. You're like, no, those are not good. Don't say those from the pulpit up there because I don't want to get be that close to lightning being struck down. Uh, so those are not good. So what, what would keep our, this general revelation on the rails? Do we have anything that would confine our conclusions? How do we know what's true or false? And that is why we have the second part of Psalm 19, which is special revelation. We have general revelation. It's revealed to everybody. And special revelation is, are these times, these unique ways that God has revealed himself at particular times and places, prophecy and visions, miracles, mighty acts of redemption. And the pinnacle of all of this special revelation is the word of God, the Bible, which is what this, that second part, verses 7 through 11, talk about. And it keeps all of those metaphors in check. 
So verses 7 through 11, let's read that again. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments or commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. These verses are talking about scripture. Andrew mentioned this last week. He was in Psalm 119, and he also looked at Psalm 19, and these verses, and because it, he was talking about the word of God, if you look at the first line in each pairing of this poetry, the law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandment, the rules, those are all synonyms for the word of God, the Bible. Each line, uh, then look at the, the second part, look at how the word of God is described because they are powerful adjectives, perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true, righteous altogether. Perfect, without any blemish, no faults, no shortcomings, nothing in it can be criticized. It's perfect. It's sure, meaning it's trustworthy. It's stable. It's reliable. It's right. There's nothing incorrect or false. It's clean. It's not stained by anything. It's true, meaning it's correct and accurate and it's based in fact. And then look at the second line in each pairing. These lines tell us what the word of God does. It revives the soul. Notice that that is not, it rejuvenates the soul. I think nature can rejuvenate the soul. I think I, my soul is rejuvenated with my family, but nothing, not nature, not my family, nothing besides God and his word can revive the soul. Revive is to bring to life, and only God's word does that. It makes wise the simple. God's word grows us in wisdom. It's easy to see if, we, if I look back at my life and go, man, he, I, feel like I'm, I still feel like I'm simple. And I hope that he continues to make me wise as I grow. That next year I'll be a teeny bit wiser than I am this year. And the year after that, maybe a little bit wiser. It rejoices the heart, meaning it causes this gladness in us. His word stirs us to praise and to worship and to rejoicing. And then in verses 10 and 11, God's word is better than the finest of gold. It's more desirable than riches. God's word is is that treasure that, is, that we discover in the field and we sell everything in order to get it. It's life-giving, forever-enduring, eye-enlightening, heart-rejoicing, wisdom-making, soul-reviving, good news. That's what the Word of God is in this, in this. And it is sweeter than honey and drippings of honeycomb. So let's recap where we've been. We have this general revelation of what that information about God, about what the world is and, and about us, it's readily apparent to everybody. It's messaging that's, that's baked into creation. And then there's special revelation, information that comes directly from God to provide greater clarity about who he is and who we are and the reality that we live in. And the greatest special revelation we have is the Bible. And then we have verses 7 through 11 that end with affirming that God's word is more valuable than riches and sweeter than honey. And speaking of honey, how does any of this relate to what I started with, with this tension in our lives of like, how am I supposed to enjoy anything or not enjoy? I haven't really talked about that. So how does this, Psalm 19, tie into that? 
by honey. That's how. This earthly delight that many of us really enjoy greatly, totally natural. We can't, bees just make it. We can't really say it's the only thing that is 100% shelf-stable. Fascinating, if you've ever dug into honey. Fascinating. How much should we enjoy it? The question remains, can I go fly fishing and truly love going fly fishing and just enjoy my time on the water and view that as worship? Or when I'm fishing, do I need this low-grade guilt like, well, it's Sunday, I'm supposed to be in church. Should I be camping right now? Or... Is it okay that I'm out here trying to catch fish? This doesn't maybe have that much like eternal consequence when I could be out sharing the gospel with somebody or meeting with somebody for coffee or praising God in church. Can I feel okay with that? So I want to look at one more, one more uh, thing on honey. It's Proverbs 24, 13 and 14. It says here, my son... Oh, I need one more, don't I? There it is. My son, eat honey for it is good. And the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is such for your soul. Do you see what's going on in this verse? I want to dig into it because it's so awesome. This is a father talking to his son. And he says to his son, if he is to understand the value of wisdom for his soul, that his son needs to understand what it's like to taste honey take that honey and taste it because in that the honey is declaring something good in your mouth and I want that message to translate into something that your soul would experience of of loving wisdom and cherishing wisdom and finding delight in wisdom you have to delight in the honey in order to delight in this wisdom that we have if you don't taste that sweet honey then the comparison won't impact you in the same way There's two responses that we could have when we experience this tension of wanting to love the Lord with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and also delighting greatly in the things in this world. There's two responses. You can either suppress the delight and in so doing hope to make the Lord seem more attractive or dive in to your delight and be filled with joy, knowing that joy is a pointer to something even better and more satisfying. You can either make Jesus better by making creation worse, or you can let creation be grand, only to remind yourself that you have nothing, or that you have not yet begun to experience true grandeur. Said said differently one more time, you can make creation stoop so that Jesus stands taller Or you can let creation rise to its full stature, reaching for the skies with all of its towering pleasures. Only then to confess from the low down bottom of your heart in that moment, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no tongue has tasted what God has prepared for us. So here's the application. Here's what we want you to hear from the elders. The heart of this sermon series is avoid suppressing any legitimate pleasures when they arise. That's a dangerous thing to say. Avoid suppressing any legitimate pleasures when they arise. Because it's dangerous because qualifications abound. Like maybe that some of those jumped into your mind. What about idolatry? 
when does it cross over into that? What about self-denial, self-control? What do we do with suffering in this? And we'll get to some of those things, and it's a rich discussion. This does not mean become a hedonist. Don't just go out there and chase pleasure. That's not what we're saying. Become a Christian hedonist. Chase after the pleasures that draw your heart to the Lord and delight in them for joy. So when a legitimate joy spontaneously erupts, take the governor off. I hope you know what that is. Take the governor off. Let it ride. If you're relating to God properly, and that is a big if for all of us, if we're relating to God properly, that is if we feel it in our bones that he is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end of all joy. He's the fullness of all joy. If that's where, what, how we're relating to God, then we don't need to be worried about lesser pleasures. We can enjoy the heck out of them. Let them erupt. Let them soar as high as they can because as those joys, as those delights soar, they take our joy in the Lord with them. And we really get to experience joy. So we don't need to throw dull parties. We can throw the best parties of all. And in the midst of those feelings of joy and delight at the end of the evening, when we're praising the Lord for the good gifts and the good friends and the good food and the good conversations that we just got to enjoy and this wonderful weather and all these things at a good party that happened, in the middle of that, we confess that this, even this, is but a picture and a foretaste of the days to come when he returns. That's experiencing joy. That's pursuing joy. Finally, we have this last section. It's going to draw us into communion. The author, David, of this psalm has just been looking at creation and, and saying what it declares about God all day long. And he's been talking about God's sure and right and pure and clean and perfect word. And anytime we do that, anytime we look at God's word and look at who he is and get this real big view of how awesome God is, it often leads to our own declaring of how small we are and this, this confession. So we're confronted with how, sh- fall, how, how short we fall and, and we see our sinfulness and our need for a savior. And that's what happens in verses 12 and 13. David says, who can discern his errors Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Who can discern his errors? This is a rhetorical question, of course. David's saying, man, can, can a person even know where he's messed up, really, fully? You can get glimpses, but who can discern all of them? Nobody. It's a rhetorical question. He's asking God, declare me innocent from my hidden faults. David recognizes there's things about me that are so sinful, and I don't even know them. They're hidden from me. I'm blind to them, not because they're so small and insignificant, but because they're so characteristic, and I do them all the time without even realizing that they're sinful. He says, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. These are sins that are willful. David's admitting he has those two. Keep keep me back from them. The thoughts and the behaviors that we know are wrong and still do them. And then at the end of verse 13, he says, then if God does that, he'll be declared blameless and innocent of great transgression. Of course, there's no way for David to be blameless on his own, just as there's no way for us to be blameless on our own. But if we look at the final word in this psalm, it's one filled with hope. 
This is a thousand years or so before Jesus came, and yet David knows there's a Redeemer. We're on the other side of that, that we also know that there's a Redeemer. Jesus came and redeemed his people. The founder and perfecter of our faith came down for the joy that was set before him. The joy of it. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So we're going to get to enjoy uh, communion together. The servers are going to bring him and pass the, the, the elements of communion. And if you can just hold on to them, uh, we'll take them together. So we invite you to do this if you are a believer, but, but please don't do it lightly. Uh, it's not meant to be uh, taken as a rote ritual, but as this joyful and rich reminder of our faith and our life in Christ who died for us. What he accomplished in his death and resurrection, that's what we get to do, so don't take it lightly. And if you're not a believer, we ask that you don't take it either. This table is not for you. You, you can't remember yet. That's what we are doing. We're remembering what Christ did for us. And if you're not there, then you can't remember it with us. So instead, do it the first time, and then you can remember next time. Do it the first time. Go to him. Confess that you need him, that he is Lord. Ask him to be your Savior. Ask him to be the Lord of your life. Admit that you see this declaration in the heavens. Have him come in. Let's pray. And the worship team is going to come up, and we'll distribute the elements, and I'll come back in, up, and we'll take them together. But would you pray with me? Well, God, let the words of my mouth, of our collective thoughts, the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit working in us. Our hope is in you alone. We praise you and thank you. Amen.